Chapter Six of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six by Hearth and Home. Very few people in Florence live in a self-contained house. The custom is rather to rent a flat or to live in one of the flats of one's own house, and to let the others to strangers or to junior branches of one's own family. This is because the houses are so spacious that it would be impossible, except a perfect retinue of servants were kept, to inhabit the whole of one of them. Moreover, the way in which they are built makes some system of subdivision almost necessary. For even the old palaces, of which there are so many, seem to have been planned with a view to accommodating not only the head of the family and his children, but his son's families as well, and the more modern buildings have used the same method. We always find a broad roomy staircase, often of marble, which ascends from the ground floor to the top of the house. On each landing two doors, one to right, one to left, give access to the suite of rooms situated on that landing. This makes it an easy matter to divide the house into quartiere, or flats, each of which can be inhabited by one family, while the staircase is common property, and so are the services of the portinaio who lives in a little room on the ground floor, and is supposed to sweep the stairs, take in letters and parcels, as well as any messages which may be left for those who live in the household, of which he is the official caretaker. As a great deal of the comfort of life depends on how one stands in the favour of the portinaio, it is as well to keep on good terms with him, otherwise he can cause endless annoyance by mislaying letters and parcels, forgetting important messages, and so on. Of course, we do not find porters in every house. That depends upon the circumstances of the tenants, although in Florence, more than in most cities, rich and poor are thrown together in a very wholesome manner, for the price of quartiere and rooms vary according to their height from the ground, and it often happens that some very rich and aristocratic family may be living on the first floor, while the fourth or fifth may be inhabited by very poor but decent artisans. When no porter is kept, various means are employed by dwellers on the upper flats to avoid the constant labour of going up and down the many long flights of stairs. The street door is opened by means of a strong wire, while, when message boys arrive or the postman goes his rounds, a basket is let down to the street from a window, and drawn up again when the parcel or letter has been placed in it. As regards rents, Apartments, as flats are generally called, are much cheaper on the south side of the Arno than on the north, while as to the superiority of one locality over another, no fixed rule can be laid down, as one often finds charming apartments, with lovely views and quaint lodges and roof gardens, in very narrow streets, where the ground floor is occupied by tiny pokey shops. As most of the houses have thick walls and floors of terrazzo or varnished brick, in very luxurious dwellings the floors are of parquet, they are as a rule delightfully cool in summer, although somewhat dark when the sun shutters are closed. But they are terribly cold in winter, unless carpets are laid down and provision made in the sitting rooms for open fires. For Florence has by no means an ideal winter climate, Indeed, in December, January and February, when the bitter wind, known as the Tramontana, sweeps down from the snow-covered Apennines, 
and sears the valley of the Arno with its keen icy breath. It is often intensely cold, and there is little comfort to be had in the large bare rooms of an ordinary Italian house, heated only by a scaldino, standing forlornly in the middle of the floor. True, every person in the house, and for that matter, every person in the street as well, have their own private scaldino, which they carry in their hands or use as a foot-warmer. But, even so, these funny little earthenware pots, filled with glowing charcoal embers, do not make up for a blazing fire, or even for a well-ventilated stove. As for hot water bottles, they are not used, but a good substitute is to be found in the trabicolo, which is a framework of lathes, shaped like a dish-cover, and containing a clay pot full of hot ashes, which we may find rising like a hunch under our bedclothes in the middle of our bed when we retire to rest. Of course it has to be removed, but it leaves a comfortable heat behind it. As elsewhere on the continent, it is usual in a Florentine household to have early breakfast, consisting of coffee, rolls and butter, served in one's own room, the public meals being luncheon or early dinner at midday, and another repast, which may vary between supper and a stereotyped late dinner at seven. In upper-class houses, afternoon tea is now a recognised institution. Here is a fair specimen of the menu which we may have, or would have had before the war, at dinner in an ordinary Italian middle-class house. Soup, omelette or dish of macaroni, cooked with tomatoes or other vegetables. Some variety of meat, cooked in oil or boiled with rice or vegetables. Chicken in some form or other, with salad, or, when odds and ends needed to be used up by the thrifty housewife, a fritto misto, or mixed fry, into which everything is put. Scraps of meat, cold vegetables, rice, squares of bread, celery cut into dice, scraps of liver, and so on. In this heterogeneous dish, these are all fried brown, and taste so deliciously that no one is inclined to ask what one is eating. Puddings are more common in Italy than in France, and Chianti, the ordinary red wine of the country, and fruit, find a place at every meal. Mutton is inferior, rabbits are only eaten by the very lowest classes, but veal is excellent, and lamb can be had all the year round. Beef, kid, pork, and above all poultry, are staple articles of food. Butter is a luxury, oil taking its place as far as possible, and sweets and jam are rare, owing to the high price of sugar. On the other hand, fresh fruit is cheap and most abundant. In establishments where a cook is kept, she generally does the marketing, as much chaffering and bargaining is needed, if one would obtain commodities at fair prices and mistresses, as a rule, prefer to avoid this disagreeable part of housekeeping. But shopping by proxy has its disadvantages, and if anyone intends to make a lengthened stay in Florence, it is better to acquire a sufficient knowledge of Italian to make oneself understood, and boldly tackle both the stallholders in the market and the shopkeepers for oneself. Catering for small households is much easier in Florence than it is at home, for things are sold in such a way that much more variety in food can be obtained. There is no need for anyone to buy a whole fowl, for instance, if they do not wish to do so. All that is necessary is to purchase just that part of the bird that is required. 
if a fricassee is wanted, or an entree, or a delicate repast for an invalid, one or both of the breast portions can be bought. If an ordinary stew is needed, the legs and neck are sold for the purpose, at a very cheap rate. The wings can be included if necessary. For soup there is the carcass, while the combs, wattles and liver are sold by themselves, under the name of regalia, going as a rule to the kitchens of the rich, to be used in the preparation of sauces and entrees. The principal market for food supplies is that of San Ambrogio, which is held in the Piazza Ghiberti, near the Porte alla Croce. This market, which is commonly called the Mercato dell'Erbi, is a very pretty sight, as it is here that all fruit and vegetables, wholesale as well as retail, are sold, along with seeds, young plants and trees, and all agricultural and horticultural appliances. But one must rise betimes to see it at its best, for in spring and summer the contadini begin to arrive from the country about 4am, their barocci laden with farm and garden produce, and an hour later the market is in full swing. Fruit can be purchased very cheaply here. One of the most interesting sights of the market is the hundreds of horses and mules, which, still harnessed to their barocci, are left standing for hours quite alone, while their owners are busy attending to their stalls in another part of the square. Wandering about these stalls, one can study many of the plainly fashioned, homely appliances used by the Tuscan peasants in their work in field or garden. Here we see a pile of sickles, exactly similar in shape to those with which the Etruscan husbandman shore down his hay or corn. There is a heap of the roughly hewn wooden utensils, tubs, pails, etc., which will be needed at the time of the rendemiare. Farther on, a white-haired countryman is watching over a stack of ladders, such as are used when men prune the olive trees or carefully gather the ripened fruit in the autumn. In winter, beside the markets, there are open batola, or cookshops, where food may be bought ready-cooked. Even if you have no wish to become a customer, it is very fascinating to linger for a time in front of one of these, and watch the proceedings which are carried on inside. Away in the background are glowing charcoal furnaces, covered in like ovens, on top of which stand numberless copper pots and pans, out of which most toothsome odours emanate. At one side is an open fire, overhung by a great wheel, which turns a spit on which are impaled not only ducks and fowls, but thrushes and larks as well. In front, on a heated counter, lie piles of eatables of all sorts, from slices of yellow polenta made of maize and oil, and different kinds of chestnut cakes to multitudinous fritters made of all sorts of ingredients, from veals, sweetbreads and calves' brains, to the blossoms of vegetable marrows and frogs' legs. To breakfast in one's bedroom, where one can partake of the meal in dressing gown and bedroom slippers, is not conducive to trigness of attire, and, to our notions, the mistress of a Florentine house might not represent an ideal picture of tidiness were we to call on her in the early hours of the morning. But when she goes out to mass, or, later in the day, to walk in the Boboli gardens, or drive in the Cascine, all is changed. The Boboli gardens, which run up the hill from the Pitti Palace, are very beautiful, and are also interesting from a botanical point of view. For, 
being laid out in the quarries from which the stone was taken to build the pity palace and other structures they are naturally very sheltered and all sorts of rare and tropical plants grow luxuriantly in them in fact they are more or less show gardens where one walks primly about and admires the plants or sits gratefully in the shade on hot afternoons but the cascine or great public park which stretches for some miles westward along the arno from the piazza degli zuavi is a more homely place of recreation and is a joy and boon to every inhabitant of florence rich and poor alike covering a large extent of ground once a desolate range of mud-banks which were reclaimed and cultivated by the notorious alessandro de medici who in spite of his vicious tastes had a great love for horticulture it now resembles a stretch of forest land most of it being covered with tall shady trees intersected by narrow winding paths while here and there we suddenly come out into delightfully green meadows where cows are browsing and where anyone can picnic if they will there are also two broad carriage drives one of which runs through the woods and is the fashionable rendezvous of florentine society in summer while in winter the sunny sheltered drive by the banks of the arno is the more popular everyone who can afford to do so drives in the cascine on sundays even if they go on foot all the other days of the week indeed in bygone times it was customary to have a clause inserted in most marriage contracts to the effect that the husband bound himself to provide a carriage at more or less frequent intervals in which his wife might drive in the cascine fashionable young mothers are very frequently to be seen in this park driving in motors or carriages accompanied by their babies who are carried on cushions by their balia or wet nurse these balias are most imposing personages for they are women chosen for their strength and fine physique who come from the country or from the mountains to take charge of the city baby for the first year of its existence they wear a special dress which is extremely picturesque and adds to the distinction of their appearance it consists of a brightly coloured stuff gown an embroidered apron and fichu trimmed with lace and a headdress composed of an enormous bow or ruche of broad ribbon pink for a girl blue or scarlet for a boy with long ends which hang down to the hem of their skirts behind there is a miniature race course in the cascine where race meetings are held from easter monday until the heat grows too oppressive for the sport in spring and autumn a game called pallone which is a mixture of fives and tennis and yet unlike both is played here on large courts by young men in the evening just as tennis is played at home the game is played with a leather ball about half the size of a football and instead of rackets each of the six players has a curious pear-shaped contrivance strapped on his right forearm with this he strikes the ball there are three players on each side with a line not a net dividing them from their opponents and the scoring is by points a great deal of mild betting on the game goes on among the spectators who watch it with deep interest end of chapter 6